You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is Danny Anderson back in the studio uh, after the coronavirus exile and uh, welcome you to another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. As always, I'm thrilled that you listen and I'd love for you to um, uh, go to iTunes and leave a nice review of the show if you could. Um, I was actually just looking at that recently and there was a, a negative review. I don't know if you remember listening to a, uh, an episode we recorded about that Christian conspiracy book um, back in the in the 50s sometimes of the show uh, and he called us a, a Gnostic fanatic. I'm a Gnostic fanatic, according to that guy. Um, and so, so I'd love some counter, some counter punch on iTunes if you could. So, um, but, and also I wanted to remind you right from the outset that if you have not f- known about this yet, if you don't follow the network, the Christian Humanist Radio Network, uh, there's a new show hosted by my wife, uh, Kim Anderson, and it's called Restoration, a Creation Care Podcast. And it's about, um, Christianity and its intersections with environmental issues. Uh, and so I'd love for you to go to the Facebook page and like that and go to your podcatcher and uh, subscribe to that and uh, and get involved with what uh, Kim's doing. Um, it's been a kind of lifelong passion of hers and uh, I'm real happy that she's gotten uh, to do the show. And so, um, and on to today's episode, this is going to be uh, a fun one. I think uh, this is, I, I can't remember honestly, and I couldn't dig it up on Twitter. It's been so long. Someone, a listener had recommended that we had, we record uh, an episode about the New York Times article by Tara Isabella Burton on May 8th called Christianity Gets Weird. Uh, and it's about this kind of uh, movement in Christianity, particularly in kind of older high church forms like Catholicism, um, of like moving back to a kind of Christianity that is uh, completely at odds with uh, modern sort of liberal capitalism. And, and so uh, this is a really interesting thing. I think it's a perfect fit for the show. And I think I have developed such a great network to talk about this because not only do we have Michael Farmer, uh, of the Christian, of, uh, Christian Humanist podcast and the Christian Feminist podcast. You've been on them all. Uh, Michael, how you doing? I'm good, Danny. You know, it was weird for me listening to the intro to the show because I've been listening to podcasts at like 1.75 speed. And that, that song that opens your show sounded impossibly <laughs> slow. I thought there was something going wrong with the network. <laughs> nope. Nope, just with your podcatcher. Uh, no, I do the same thing sometimes to get through them faster. Uh, but Michael, you and Victoria, your wife, Victoria Farmer of the Christian Feminist Podcast, are in the process of converting to Catholicism. And so when this was brought up to me, I thought you'd be a perfect person to have on the show about it. So I really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, I, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no, you're always, you know, you've been on here many times. You're always welcome. And, uh, and joining us is Ben Crosby. Ben's been on the show before. We talked about, um, his, his podcast of theology and socialism, um, uh, a while back. And Ben is actually featured in this article. And I, Ben, you have the honor, uh, or I have the honor. You're the first person who's ever been on the show who's had a photograph in the New York Times. So. <laughs> Amazing. Well, uh, thanks. It's, it's, yeah, great to be here, Danny. I would totally have that thing framed and put on my wall. I assume you have. I, 
makes me look significantly cooler than I actually am. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it was it was great to be on here with uh, with my co-host Stephen um, a while ago to talk about theology and socialism, and I am thrilled to be back. Yeah, no, I'm so happy to have you because this is a really interesting topic to me personally. Um, you know, I have this interest in all things weird and. I've always kind of felt like there was some way to connect that to my faith, right? And I think that this might give me that opportunity to get into that. So, um, Ben and, and Michael, let me just kind of start. So, um, like I said, Tara Isabella Burton wrote this, uh, it was put as an op-ed, I think, in the New York Times um, called Christianity Gets Weird. And it basically covers this movement that is largely online. Um, this one of the benefits of our new media is that it is able to connect small isolated communities into some cohesive whole and uh, this online kind of movement of people rediscovering or sort of reappreciating um, older liturgical forms of Christianity as a kind of escape from um, the trappings of sort of modernity, right? Um, and the way in which modernity has kind of um, whitewashed, if you will, you know, traditional, both evangelical and mainline Protestant um, forms uh, of Christianity. And so, and, and she features a few people. I don't know how you feel, Ben, about being featured along with Rod Dreher. Um, <laughs> I definitely, uh, definitely got some teasing about being put right next to him and, uh, you know, deservedly so, I think. Yeah. Well, it's, it's weird, Ben, because on the, on the website, at least, uh, the paragraph where they introduce you is, is directly over the picture of Dreyer. So it's like, I think people who don't know who Rod Dreyer is would think that that's a picture of you. <laughs> We should all be so lucky, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, the Benedict option is, I think, a form of this, right? I mean, it's it's not an unrelated kind of at least desire, right, Ben? Yeah. No, I think I think that's fair, right? I mean, I think one of the one of the things I I think is worth talking about, right, is is what are the sort of ruptures or divisions within the kind of broad broad group that that Tara sketched out here. Can I ask a question out front? So. They, it, it's narrated that you've sort of deemed yourselves weird Christianity. Is there a person that's responsible for the term or is it, is it kind of lost to, to the history of, of the movement? Oh goodness. I mean, how deep on uh, in Twitter lore do you, uh, do you want to go? <laughs> as really? deep as you can want to go. Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, uh, I think it sort of started as a Catholic thing, right? Sort of weird Catholic yeah. Twitter. And then, more or less in response to that, um, a variety of other sort of denominational or ecclesial groups with, I think, generally combining a sort of particular sort of online presence um, and then a, a pretty firm commitment to both a um, both with a lefty or at least anti-liberal politics sort of calling themselves, you know, weird fill in the blank Twitter. And, and here we are. Okay. So just something to kind of, uh, uh, indicate a rupture with, uh, with kind of the mainstream of, of Christian thought and, and practice, I guess. Um, Michael, can I shift it to you for a minute? Um, I would love to know, um, I don't know how much you've gone into this and how much you you want to like, what kind of led you to sort of, 
I mean, you have no Catholic background at all, right? Um, and, and this None. is something that you've adopted over time after teaching at an evangelical college for a long time. And so I'd kind of like to know, um, your, whatever process, um, your thought process and whether you see anything in this article that you can kind of relate to. And then we'll kind of get into Ben's, um, like canonical weird Christianity. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do. I do kind of relate to the overall motion of that article. This this idea that there's something dissatisfying about the the modern world, which I would be happy to identify as nominalism, the belief that uh, you, there are no real essences, just what we call things. And I, I almost hesitate to 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 bring that up because I know it's a big sticking point in the Benedict Option. And we've already uh, we've already dunked on Rod Dreher, and I don't want to I don't want to get too too associated with them. But that that definitely rings true to me. There's some there's something um, realer, really, in a metaphysical sense, to me about uh, about Catholicism than certainly evangelical Protestantism. And I know that Danny, you're low church Protestant, and Ben, you're high church Protestant. So I don't want to get in too big of an argument uh, <laughs> about it. But yeah, I, I would, I would that that does seem right to me. I, I would, I would say, I, I I hesitate to associate myself with weird Catholic Twitter, if only because I don't care that much about things like the Latin Mass versus the Novus Ordo. And if you spend much time with those people on Twitter, you'll you'll see that there's a big fight about that. And I I really don't care about that. Um, I, I like the liturgy, I like the rituals, but more than that, I like the the, the kind of philosophical and aesthetic history behind it and that that's kind of what drew me to the church and then you know the eucharist and we can if you really want to argue about that we can but i don't figure you do <laughs> i don't really want to argue but i just kind of want to have a conversation right and so that's not my style um but i actually it does bring me to one point that um that burton makes in the article is that she makes a comparison to punk and i think that that's actually very true i think that 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 rings true to me about the aesthetics of this um but also comes with that is this territorialism, the sectarianism um, that is true of punk music too. You have sort of East coast and West coast uh, punk and British and American punk and all these debates that uh, are kind of about just sort of establishing territory. And, uh, and, and I can see that happening in something like this. I mean, just as it happens in the, in the political left. And so, um, um, and, uh, Danny, I think it helps that there is a, a marginal figure in kind of hipster Catholicism, this guy, Taylor Marshall, who, who is who is so against the Novus Ordo that I think most reasonable people want to distance themselves from him, and I, I think it, it it can kind of soften that division a little bit, but it's still a pretty aggravating division, and it's still pretty aggravatingly territorial, even for people to the left, I suppose you would say, of Taylor Marshall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and honestly, even right now, as you guys are talking about this, I'm feeling completely left out of the conversation. I have no idea what you're even talking about. <laughs> Which is how kind of uh, minuscule this is, right? And so, um, but but it's but it is important when you sort of choose communities. And so, um, Ben, why don't you talk a little bit about your your journey? I mean, it gets narrated a little bit here in the article. Let me kind of read if I can find it real quickly. Uh, what she writes about you? Goodness, all right, there it is. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. I should cut this out. Hey, listen to that weird Christian bell tower ringing. I assume that's on your line, Ben. No, it's on mine. Um, in my uh, office. Yeah, I teach at a see, Sisters of Mercy school. 
See, you're more you're more attached to it than you thought you were, Danny. <laughs> I love that actually. The I, Angelus bell is ringing, <laughs> and I'm like right <laughs> under the bell tower. My office is. I'm in this really. I'm actually my office is an old um, cell of a nun. Um, there's still the water hookups in here, and and so yeah, our offices are very linked to the um, the kind of liturgical history of this institution, uh, Mount Aloysius College, for those of you who don't know. And, uh, and yeah, right down the hall is the, the sick ward um, that was in the hall. And it's just like a, and other people's offices are in there. Yeah. I love being immersed in this kind of um, tradition and I'm right under the chapel and I go up there all the time and, and, and uh, just sit silently. And yeah, it's something I, I very much do love low church as I am. Um, so Ben, um, let me write how Burton, um, describes you one weird christian is ben crosby an episcopalian seminarian who is using google hangouts to pray the office of the dead a relatively uncommon prayer from the anglican breviary mr crosby a student at yale divinity school came to the faith partly through being moved by its otherworldly aesthetics and it says you were raised lutheran do you want to um, expand on that a little bit ben yeah, sure. I mean, so I think one thing that comes to mind first sort of about about the framing of the conversation is I noticed, you know, a word you used, and I think a word that's did come up in the conversation about this is is escape, right? This is sort of some sort of mm. escape yeah. from from modernity. And I, you know, whether or not that's, I think, a sort of fair read of, of what the article conveys, I think it's worth saying, like, that's not my project, right? Like, I think... You know, we we're we're stuck here for better or worse, right? And it's it sort of ways of of living and being as Christians in the world as it is, rather than you know, LARPing the the 16th century or the 12th. <laughs> and that that is an, a way to distinguish from what Rod Dreyer is doing uh, in the Benedict option, right? Because I think he does like kind of frame his move as as a retreat, right? As 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 a kind of escape as much as he can. Um, I, and, well, I, I I don't know. Anytime yeah, I've ever no, heard somebody think, accuse him of that, he fights back pretty hard. I don't I don't think he conceives of it as an escape, even if when you read the book, it certainly seems like one. Yeah, I mean, he's always pointing to like a line that you're not. <laughs> remembering right okay <laughs> you've wrote a 400 page yeah, yeah, book memorized this book. Yeah. i don't remember every line right the, the grand like movement of it does come across as an escape and largely again i mean frankly for me the whole thing for him is his revulsion he has like weird hang-ups with like sexual ethics uh and that's like the only thing that seems to motivate anything he wants to do um that's my own reading of his book though but um uh, but go ahead ben you're yeah. I'm cutting you off that's right yeah no no absolutely um but yeah, I mean, I think the story that she she gave is is you know is accurate, right? Like I sort of grew up um, in a kind of suburban Chicago um, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod um, congregation. Found my way to the Episcopal Church in college, um, and I do think that that for me, wanting you know, yes, it's about it's about the liturgy, it's about the aesthetics, but it's more importantly about the set of commitments I think about the nature of God, the world and the Christian life that those enact, which I think can be enacted in a variety of worship styles and liturgical registers. Um, but I think this, this sense of connection to the church across space and time to sort of being formed into the body of Christ, um, this emphasis on the sacraments, um, which of course wasn't something particularly foreign to me, right? I mean, it's, it's, important within Lutheranism as, as, as well. Um, 
And I think this, this sense that the Christian life wasn't, I wasn't entirely compatible, I guess, with being a good American in either mm. it's sort of liberal or conservative manifestations, right? That it's, it's not either you go on Sunday to get the sort of moral exhortation to go out and, you know, fulfill the kind of stereotypical NPR listeners political program, or you go to church and get the, the sort of moral suasion to go out and, you know, vote Republican and do those sets of things that, that sort of in some ways Christianity was an identity that, and then really more importantly, sort of belonging to Jesus Christ in baptism um, was an identity that demanded a different way of being in the world that challenged the ways that we might otherwise be formed to or want to be. And um, Michael, do you want to follow up with that? No, I would I would agree with that 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 it it is a kind of um, third way uh, out of a lot of the the kind of political dichotomies of of contemporary America and even contemporary Christianity. This this weird Christianity high church thing allows a kind of you know way between. So I did a, uh, an interview with a colleague of mine here who's a, a deacon in the Eastern Catholic Church. Um, and so he's not, he's not Eastern Orthodox, he's Eastern Catholic. And so um, he talks about the way in which the kind of traditional, I mean, and they do a very kind of archaic service, right? With like in, in other languages and, and not even Latin. I think they do Russian. And, um, and yeah, so, their, their services look much more like the Eastern Orthodox services from my understanding. Yeah. And Tony said that they're actually indistinguishable. Um, the only kind of main difference is that they have actually, they're, bodies have made peace with Rome basically. And that's the right. only kind of like technical difference between them. But um, for him, the he, he's told me privately and I think on the air that the, the bells and smells as, as they say um, are part of the enchantment, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's used that term, but it, it's a, it's a way in which you kind of break. It's a radical break from your sort of day to day life. And when you enter into these spaces and go through these rituals, it is a way of kind of, um, pulling out of the, the ebb and flow of American life. And, um, and in, I think most cases for those of us who worship in kind of, you know, more mainstream Christian circles, the, our church services just become an extension of American life. Right. And, and it doesn't have that sort of rupture from it. And therefore from, for me, and this is my own kind of take on it, you lose the kind of possibility of having an ethical distance from your day to day life from which to kind of evaluate and judge it. Right. And so, because it's all just sort of one big um, morass of, uh, uh, of, of practices. And so I, I, for me, I think if I were to kind of go down the road that you guys have gone down, if I could find a place to do it, God knows who knows where I live. But, um, but the, uh, that would be the, that would be the draw for me is the ability to kind of find a space that is, um, radically different and therefore kind of transcendent of, um, of day to day life. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways I became Catholic kind of internally before I knew it when I went on this writing retreat to St. John College in Minnesota. And it's attached to a Catholic monastery, St. John Abbey. It's a Benedictine monastery. And they have this very strange um, 
Abbey Church there, uh, which like a lot of architecture from Minnesota, it's brutalist. So it's got these very sharp corners and it's all concrete. And, you know, I thought of Ryan Hildebrand on on Twitter likes to likes to uh, put it down. But I really had a profound religious experience just walking into that that church. And I had this sense, this is the real world, you know, because you think of the monastery as being this place of retreat, right? But I, I I, could feel it when I walked into that building, that this is the real world, and the rest of the world is kind of in retreat from this. Mm. Um, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and it's certainly part of the attraction to me. One of the things that seems tricky to me, right, is figuring out how to to give an account of the way in which certain forms of liturgy can indeed produce the sort of experiences you're talking about, can perhaps even engender certain sorts of ethical subjectivity, while like also recognizing that there's nothing automatic about it, right? And that there's, you know, there's sort of plenty of work to, you know, good sort of most beautiful, ornate, high church smells and bells, you know, whatever sort of service and and not actually, you know, be formed in this kind of ha- counter hegemonic way that we're that we're talking about. Um, so it's not that I disagree with you exactly. I mean, I think, you know, that sense of sort of separation and kind of imagining and then sort of being in a space of imagining and an alternative kind of ordering, sort of grounded in 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 the church, you know, has has, has been important to me. Continues to be important. To me. Um, but I do worry, and one of the things I, I worry, frankly, about especially in my own tradition is is an attempt to make the liturgy um, to sort of catechize and form um ben i'm gonna ask you you're breaking up a little bit do you think you could um maybe turn off your camera i think that might um help with the uh the, the bandwidth issue there I was able to get like yep. um, you know, one eighty percent of that. It's no big deal, but um, just from here on out, and I'll, I'll go through and cut all this out. Cool. Okay. That um, is this, am I coming through clearer now? Is this better? Um, yeah. So far, yeah. Um, yeah. There were just like a, every few seconds, just a little bit of a drop out there, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to have the whole cool. show um, do that, but this sounds better. No, of course. And let me take a second. Um, and no, I think that that's a good point that you're making there, Ben. Um, I think that the um, um, the, it's not sort of like a, uh, you know, an Aleister Crowley sort of magical ritual <laughs> to, to produce an effect, right. Um, that you can sort of, um, you can count on and in that way it becomes sort of mechanical in its own right. And, um, and so I think that that's actually a really good, um, piece of pushback there. Um, and, and it's probably a trap that a lot of folks are falling into though, that are getting, um, drawn to this movement, wouldn't you say? I think that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can I ask, uh, you know, let me shift the, I guess, a little bit politically here. Um, this seems to me because a lot of the uh, draw to this uh, to this form of worship is kind of stem, is connected to, let me just say, a uh, an observation about the failings of individualism and sort of liberal capitalism and that sort of thing. Um, there is sort of a political element to this. Um, and, and I know that you come from sort of more like left radical circles, right? There is also a way in which this kind of manifests as reactionary though. And we've talked about Rod Dreher a little bit too, and I wouldn't necessarily say he's reactionary, but you think he's going that direction. Um, and, and do you want to talk a little bit about that 
that strange overlap. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a, a good point and a, and a fair one to raise, right? I mean, I think one of the the interesting things is the possibility to have a critique of liberalism that sort of shares a lot of common features, but cashes out in very, very different ways politically. Um, you know, I mean, I think there are also differences in the in the sort of right or left critique, right? Whether you think something called gender ideology or something called capitalism is the sort of primary issue at, at play is going to shape, you know, is going to shape what might be a generally similar concern about, yes, sort of individualism, the loss of a substantive account of the common good, that sort of thing. Um, but it is true that, yeah, I mean, with a lot of these folks who, you know, in terms of sort of actual practical politics, you know, were on the, the opposite side of uh, of the line, as it were, you know, there is a fair deal of kind of bedrock critique of the current state that is shared. Mm. Does that play? How does that play out on on Twitter, <laughs> which seems to be? If how does anything play out well, on Twitter? Well, I suppose. People yelling profanity at each other. <laughs> lots lots of gifts, probably. Yeah. So, um, um, well, do those circles like communicate with each other, or have they kind of like um, distinguished themselves somehow on 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 these social spaces? Yeah, I think that's going to vary a lot, right? Like, I sort of think of my own. Right, my own sort of Twitter circles, you know, I think I'm somebody who's a pretty um, indiscriminate, um, you know, sort of follower and interactor with people on, on Twitter. Um, and so, you know, I sort of find myself engaging in conversations in, I guess, a sort of variety of like mostly non-overlapping um, communities there because, yeah, I think I think you know, there are certainly a set of folks that don't get along. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's probably, I mean, there's a great passion that comes behind this because I mean, there, this seems to be because of its, I guess, connection to often ideas of authenticity, right? I mean, I think people are taking this as like a core form of their identity. And so you're going to have passion when I was talking to Tony and he talked about the, you know, the recent converts to Eastern Eastern um, forms of worship. um, There's like a joke amongst his circles. They call them the Uber docs. Right. (laughs) And so, um, (laughs) and, and I think that that's actually, I mean, that leads to, you know, probably some not so fruitful debate, I suppose. (laughs) Um, Michael, um, what are your thoughts on the politics of all this? Again, from the Catholic perspective, and and one of one of my big attractions to Catholicism was that it has a very well established and well worked out um, social plan, right? I mean, there's there's an actual social ethics that is in the Catechism that there's room to maneuver within, so you can kind of be on the right or on the left within that ethics, but mm. you've, you've still pretty much, I, you know, you're, you're pretty much expected to, to believe in, in these things, the common good, solidarity, subsidiarity, things like that. So I, I really liked that about, um, about Catholicism. And I, I kind of appreciate that there's a, 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 a spectrum in weird Catholic Twitter on how to apply those, uh, those general principles. Hmm. But, you know, I get tired of the politics just like everybody else. And I, I certainly think there are reactionary nutcases and uh, and uh, what would you call just uh, leftist nutcases, wingbats and 
I can't remember the other one. Moon moon bats and wing nuts. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know that. And I mean, going back to the punk aesthetic, though, too. I mean, I, I think that that does kind of provide a framework for me to understand this um, a little bit because I, I mean, there's the the Dead Kennedy song, Nazi punks. You know, um, f off <laughs> is, the, is the song, right? Um, and so that indicates the fact that in even the Dead Kennedy Circle, which was you know pretty pretty radical, pretty radical left, um, they I mean they had fans that were essentially you know fascists, right? Uh, and, and there is a way in which something that's so kind of like against the grain is going to I don't know just weirdly be attractive to seemingly opposite ideologies. Right. And, and I, I just find that to be interesting. I don't know what to say about it other, other than I just find it kind of interesting. Well, Danny, that's why, that's why I worry that this is built not so much on an acceptance of something, but on a rejection of something. So, mm. so when, if, if the movement really is punk rock or whatever, I, I, I mean, I kind of think that calling something punk is the surest way to make it uncool. <laughs> but, um, but, but if it, if it really is based on just rejecting modern life, I think you are going to get all sorts of nasty reactionaries showing up. And, and I, I, you know, I think that's happened. I'll, I won't name any names. Um, well, yeah, go ahead. No, no. And I was just going to say, I think I mean that goes back to Ben's original point about it not being an escape, right? Um, uh, he doesn't conceive of what he's doing as a run from, but a run toward, right? Um, it's, it's a positive thing for you, right, Ben? That's right. Very much so. Yeah. And Michael, I had cut you off. Go, um, go no, ahead. No, no, no. That's fine. Oh, I wanted to complete your thought. That's okay. Um, and so, yeah, well, while we're on the subject then um, of modernity, right? So this as a kind of um, one way or the other, positive or negative reaction against uh, modernity, it does it makes me think back um, to something that we talked about when I was guesting on the Christian Humanist podcast back in 2013. 14 or something like that. Um, there was an episode we did on the phenomenon of metamodernism, which you introduced us all to in that episode. Um, and I, which was the way I can re recall it and frame it, a kind of search for some kind of sincerity after the irony of postmodernism, right? Uh, when, when in, in a world in which everything has just been stripped of all meaning, um, there was sort of a desire, maybe think of someone like David Foster Wallace as um, trying to attach some meaning to what their, what life was about um, in the wake of postmodernism's um, disenchantment of things. Right. And so, um, and, and this seems to me to fit into that a little bit. I mean, what are your thoughts yeah, and it's not just that it's a return to sincerity; it's a partial return. And and I, the the I can't remember the names of the theorists uh, yeah. who uh, who who formulated it, Two but their Dutch their guys. image is an <laughs> is an awesome. Yeah, they're Robin Vanderacker or something like that. That sounds right. Timothy Vermeulen, that's the guy's name. Anyway, um, it, it's the image they use is an oscillation. So it's it's not opting for sincerity or opting for irony. It's oscillating very rapidly between them, which I, I think is definitely the way a lot of weird Christian Twitter discourse works. But then I think it's the way a lot of Twitter discourse works, period. You know, I, I don't know that that's entirely unique among, uh, among weird Christians on Twitter. Ben, what are your thoughts on this sort of your movement's connection to the issues of irony and, um, and authenticity? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's not one I'm sure I've, I've necessarily thought about in those terms. Um, although, right, sort of thinking about this question of, of sincerity, right, I think certainly within the kind of mainline space that I inhabit, but I think as far as what I can tell, you know, sort of over, over among the Catholics as, as well, you know, one of the, one of the sort of driving quests or forces behind this is to assert, no, no, we actually do mean the things that we are saying when we're saying the creed at church on Sundays, that, you know, sort of Christianity isn't just a, you know, particular instantiation of a generic, you know, universal religious impulse or or a, you know, useful social formation and set of practices that can be mobilized to a set of, of political ends, but like, it's the real deal, actually. Um, and so, you know, so I'm not, I'm not exactly sure if that sort of fits, fits into the kind of irony sincerity question, but I think certainly a concern about recovering an unembarrassed proclamation of the Christian faith, even if it's doing so in media that include irony, jokes, a certain, a certain lightness, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, so I guess let's think about the, the theological concept of transubstantiation. Um, and so like the idea of whether you like literally believe that that substance, um, changes, uh, from, from the bread to the body. Right. Um, like I, it seems to me that that requires some kind of internal negotiation within oneself, um, between these two poles, right. But whether you actually believe it's literally true or whether you're accepting the, the metaphorical, <laughs> you know, um, practice of it. Um, uh, I, Michael, you're the one who's <laughs> going Catholic. What are you, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think what the metamodernists would say is that that faith is a kind of sincerity, right? And so a, a metamodernist could not really hold on to a literal belief in the Eucharist for very long. It would kind of oscillate back and forth, just like everything else oscillates back and forth. And that is not the attitude I see playing out on weird Catholic Twitter. I think I think about things like the historic weird doctrines of the Catholic Church, like the Eucharist, the weirdest of all doctrines, I think people are quite earnest. And and they're ironic about a whole host of other issues, often political issues and cultural issues. But those are the things they take seriously is the um, are the are the kind of, again, the weird doctrines, I guess, is, is how I would put it. Mm. What are your thoughts on that, Ben? Yeah, no, I think I think that's I think that's very well said. I think I that's certainly been been my experience as well. Um, now, I right, I think there's a sort of danger, which perhaps I don't know if irony is quite the right word, but sort of verges in a certain sort of performativity mm. of you know embracing the weird doctrines, not because they're true, but because they're weird, right? Mm-hmm. Right, which is it's it's which you know and is kind of I think maybe speaks to this sort of question. Exactly, exactly. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not the goal, I don't think, any more than a sort of bland evacuation of meaning is. 
And that's consistent to me with your earlier, you know, uh, pushback about uh, the idea of escape, right? Um, this is not a negative retreat from, it's a, um, affirm, a positive affirmation of, right, um, for you. And I think that that's actually entirely consistent with what you said before. Um, um, the, let's, Michael, do you want to talk a little... Uh, I I was thinking of Flannery O'Connor when when we were talking about this or when I was reading this earlier and it seems to me that her Catholicism um seems strange to student to people who read her today right and I wonder if she is kind of like some kind of like maybe prototype or some sort of early like pioneer of, of this uh, of weird uh Christianity what what are your thoughts on that well, the story where she's most blatantly Catholic in terms of the actual like elements of Catholicism is the story, A Temple of the Holy Ghost, mm-hmm. um, where the where the Eucharist gets compared to hermaphrodite. This girl goes to a, a circus sideshow and sees a hermaphrodite or intersex individual, as they now say, mm-hmm. um, and and you know has this like theological rumination on uh, on the Eucharist. But what's interesting to me about O'Connor is that so much, so many of her weird Christians are not uh, high church at all. They're like Pentecostals. They're rural Pentecostals and fundamentalist Baptists who stand out from the kind of modern world into which that uh, O'Connor was writing, uh, but then uh, also stand out pretty hard from any Catholic I've ever met. You know what I mean? So it's it's weird Christian, but it's not weird Catholic, except that she's a weird Catholic, and I I don't know. She's an interesting <laughs> test case. Yeah, I, I Ben, I'm putting you on the spot. I have no idea how familiar, if at all, you are with Flannery O'Connor, uh, and if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, just familiar enough to embarrass myself. I think, um, but no, <laughs> that's I mean, me I think, in every I show. That, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's very I think that's very astute. Um, and right speaks to speaks to the sort of variety of ways of kind of living a robustly Christian life orthogonal to the the values of, of liberal capitalist America, right? That it's it's you know rosaries and Latin mass isn't isn't the only way to do that, even if it is a way to do that. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that that gets me to um, a couple of other points that I wanted to bring up. One is I was doing some research, not research, I call it research. I was looking through Twitter for uh, responses to this, and um, and, I w- and some terms popped up that I want to bring up in a little bit. But before we get to that, I think um, the the article points up, um, Burton points out that even amongst people who are kind of like in my circles, I, I go to a Nazarene church still, right? Um, we have in my lifetime – um, not officially, but in practice, lots of Nazarene churches now do Lent, right? Now practice Lent, which never, hmm. never happened in my, my youth, right? That's something that's happened, geez, probably in the last 15 years, um, in my, in my experience. And, and so there does seem to me a, a general attraction for these older liturgical forms that extend beyond, um, the kind of high, you know, Uber docs <laughs> practices of them. Um, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on the kind of uh, the general thoughts. Maybe this is just sort of like um, a version of punk that just goes mainstream. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. It's something that I, that I wonder about a lot. I mean, I think it, it certainly, 
matches my own kind of anecdotal experience of the world and, you know, conversations I've had with people in my circles. I also just am not enough of a demographer of the shape of like contemporary American Christianity, um, you know, to, to really be able to say, Oh, this is, this is absolutely a trend. Um, but like I say, I think, I think it's something that I've noticed. Um, and certainly, you know, I think there are a, a tremendous set of riches in the liturgical tradition and, uh, of the church Catholic that one doesn't need to go whole hog as it were to, to find some useful and beautiful and, and edifying things in. Yeah. And I mean, I would say it, the fact that it's coming kind of on the heels of this, I don't hate to use the word hegemony, but the, the kind of mainstream practice of kind of mega church fog machines mm-hmm. and, and, you know, modern worship music and stuff. It does seem to me to be a kind of, um, Maybe it is a reaction. Maybe it is um, a negative, a running from. But there also does seem to be um, a search for something that's more timeless, I guess, um, that you can even see outside of these kind of ri- more uh, rigorous traditions. Um, and so that, that's just an observation I've made. Um, Michael, do you have thoughts on this? I, I do. I think it's a, a generally good thing because I think Lent is a generally good thing. Um, <laughs> I will say not everyone agrees. You know, our, our friend... Coyle Neal, um, I, I believe every year gets uh, kind of salty about uh, Protestants celebrating Lent. Oh, Lent is just so good, though. <laughs> well, Coyle, well, Coyle's famously wrong about everything, though. So that that, <laughs> that is evidence that you, that it is a good thing. No, I'm just we love Coyle. Coyle is one of my favorite people. Actually, we tease him even when he's not here. Um, and so the uh, but yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that um, well, Ben, why don't you say it? What is what is good about Lent? Yeah, I mean, I think I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, well, I mean, it's not always fun, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that a sort of season of not only self reflection, but in fact, penitence is is vital, right? I think so much of American Christianity um, is quite nervous about about taking sin seriously, either sort of worrying about the ways in which sin talk has been used to, to sort of oppress or harm, or kind of describing the sinner as, as some other group out there and not, you know, me, myself. Um, and so a chance to to sort of sit with that, to admit that like things are not all right, um, you know, general American positivity notwithstanding, that things are not all right in the world, in ourselves, that we cannot save ourselves, but need the grace of a loving God to do that. I mean, that's something we should be thinking about all the time, and and to have a season to really zero in on it is is super helpful, I think. Yeah, I would agree. I and I, I'll say I never really understood Easter until I started keeping Lent. Mm. The, a, that 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 period of fast really makes the feast mean something in a way that it never did to me before I started. And I, I mean, I kept Lent for several years before I even thought about converting to Catholicism. So I mean, it's not necessarily just a Catholic thing. And and by the way, the Orthodox are the ones who really do it because they uh, they do forty days and you can't eat meat, you can't eat dairy, you can't eat oil. Mm. And they do it for East for Easter and for Christmas. And I think there's another time of the year they do it too. So they're essentially vegan for a third of the year. Yeah. And, and that's like, I mean, that stands in the face of 
consumerist society where, you know, you, mm-hmm. the individual. Absolutely. And you're supposed to take Absolutely. the money that you save eating that way and give it to the poor mm. in the Orthodox church as well. So yeah, talk about countercultural. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what we're getting at here. So I think there's um, a, a wider acceptance of being countercultural and a wider desire for it um, beyond this kind of rather small segment of Christianity, right? I think that that's something that lots of people who go to, you know, sort of normie churches um, are, are actually, <laughs> actually kind of desiring of themselves in themselves. And for me, you know, I've always kind of been frustrated in my own um, low church tradition um, with what I, what I perceive as kind of a lack of seriousness about the faith. For me, um, lots of mm. churches that I've gone to have been simply, I, I mean, something more than social clubs, but something less than an absolute devotion to a religious ideal. Right. And, and so, um, and in, I frankly, in some places in the South that I, when I live down there, I think that there are churches that are only open to give people a place to talk about bulldogs games on Sunday. Um, and so, um, I think that's the only reason they exist. And so I, I think that there's a way in which churches, have been kind of co-opted by larger systems and don't stand against them, right? And therefore, the belief systems that one has to uh, adopt to, adhere to when they go to those churches, doesn't it doesn't come across as radical or transformational or something like that. And so um, for me, I think that there is a real draw towards something that just seems committed and serious. Should I shoot that to Ben? <laughs> I assume Ben is going to follow that up. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no. I mean, I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think in 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 some ways, right? Um, one of the figures, um, who at least in the American scene is is sort of lurking behind a lot of these conversations is Stanley Hauerwas, right? Who yeah. is sort of was sort of arguing for a certain kind of churchly disengagement with with the American project, um, you know, for a long time now, and. and yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the one of the opportunities that I think our churches have um, as they decline in numbers and status, which overall I think is a very bad thing, um, is you know to be liberated from from this work of being part of what it is to be a, a good responsible citizen right um that to to sort of be able to be unembarrassed about calling for something beyond you know general conformity to to sort of american mores with a little jesus sprinkled on top yeah 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 right left or right mores right because i mean there are, there are lots of um I suppose mostly mainline churches that that have capitulated just as much, just in a different way, to different forms of individualism, right? Right. That conceive of the individual as the core com- constituent of society, kind of right, rather than um, mm-hmm. the group. Yeah. Um, have you guys ever read Walker Percy's *Love in the Ruins*? I have not. I'm ashamed to say. I really. I also have, have not. Yeah. I'm oh, it's such it's such a funny novel. I'm a, it's a it's a kind of futuristic dystopia, and it's it's interesting because it's pretty much the dystopia we live in. It's a very <laughs> realistic dystopia. But he has this passage that I just looked up about um, the kind of splintering of the church in the future, and I I, I find it relevant to what we're talking about. So, um, our Catholic Church here split into three pieces: one, the American Catholic Church, whose new Rome is Cicero, Illinois; two the Dutch schismatics who believe in relevance but not God, 
three, the Roman Catholic remnant, a tiny scattered flock with no place to go. The American Catholic Church, which emphasizes property rights and the integrity of neighborhoods, retain the Latin mass and plays the star-spangled banner at the elevation. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I definitely should read that book, actually. That, that seems very timely. Um, and I, I have to say, this is probably just for me. I'm going to you know, throw this out there as, a, as a, an acknowledgement. I'm very much always out of step with most people. But um, I, I am currently working on a, a little thing about Matthew Arnold. And so I've been reading Culture and Anarchy again. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I honestly, I think a lot of what he was trying to say about England and, and he's talking about um, Anglicism and, uh, and nonconformists back in the, in, in, in the 1800s. But um, I really do think he was, when he talks about culture versus, uh, you know, sort of me- mechanical things like either politics or business or whatever. Um, I really do think he's talking about something like, weird Christianity. <laughs> I really do huh. think, um, I, I think, I don't know that he would have ever put it in those terms, but I think you can really take what he was arguing and map it onto this conversation in really useful ways. And maybe it's something I'll try to do at some point, but uh, maybe it's just that I'm reading him currently and I'm imposing it on everything I see, which happens of course. But, um, but I, I really do think that there's something um, there's some kind of like schematic connection uh, if nothing else here. That's really interesting. Yeah. And Michael knows my, my geekdom for Matthew Arnold. So um, he's, he's just staying silent. Hey, you could do a lot worse. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we should do, we should do a series of episodes on culture and anarchy. Um, I have to say uh, we should, we should uh, uh, read. I don't, I think it's probably too big to do a uh, core curriculum about, but um, although is it in the core curriculum? I don't even, it's, uh, it's not. No. Okay. Hey, how do you square your love for Matthew Arnold with your love for Terry Eagleton? <laughs> I, well, I think Matt Arnold would too. I think, um, he's all about living in the tension between binaries, right. And, and acknowledging the necessity of both, um, but trying to figure out the best way to live within those tensions. Right. And so I don't, I, I think he would resist any kind of categorical, you know, opposition to anything. Right. I, I, that's the, the more I read him, I think the more, I think he would be all for acknowledging incommensurate tensions. Um, and, and, it's a good thing to live in those tensions. And maybe I'm just trying to justify my own lack of, you know, consistency in my entire life. But, um, but that's, <laughs> that's sort of how I, that's how I do it anyway. So, um, and we just sprung Matthew Arnold on poor Ben. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> so. No, no, no. Um, well, I mean, Eagleton too, I think connects to this mm. conversation when you think about sort of his own yeah, absolutely. work. And, and, and I mean, that of sort of McCabe and especially the early Turner, um, right? This kind of question about what, in, in their cases, obviously very specifically Catholicism, but Christianity more broadly might have to say to modern liberalism, what its relationship to just sort of other movements committed to radical transformation of society might be that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Have you read um, either of you Reason, Faith and Revolution by Terry Eagleton? It's, I have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it it's, my, absolutely. it's one of my favorite books. It's so funny. He's just hilarious. It's so fun. <laughs> you got you to read the sequel, Culture and the Death of God, where he really like just tears down Matthew Arnold for 250 pages. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but I think, no, you're right. And and he even in Reason, Faith and Revolution, he, he starts in on Arnold. And, and I think it's sort of a misunderstanding. It's built on a kind of misunderstanding or 
It's blowing his idea of culture out of proportion. Like, I don't think Arnold had the idea of some cultural monolith that everybody had to conform to. And I think that's the way it's been handed down, that that's what he was talking about. And I think when you read the words, um, he's much more dialectical. I think he has a lot in common with, um, Hegel. Um, and it's, it's, and which is why Lionel Trilling, I think, um, was so interested in Matthew Arnold. And, and yeah, I think that it's, it's a misunderstanding about what he means by culture, I think. Um, or it, maybe if it's not a misunderstanding, it's an over, uh, it, it's, it's too categorical um, the way that you read that. So, um, but I will read that actually. I, I need to for the project I'm working on anyway. So um, thanks for the rec. Um, <laughs> so, um, all right. So one more thing uh, before I let you guys go, it's we're pushing on an hour here and this has been so much fun. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, Michael, for joining me and, and enlightening me about things. That's why I do this show. Um, above alls, I learn things and I get to, you know, grow individually as I, as I, as I do so. Um, but one, some of the things that I saw in people resisting a return to kind of, you know, basically Catholic, um, early Christian traditions, right? Um, is someone put out there, oh, isn't just biblicism also countercultural? Um, isn't crucicentrism also countercultural? And I felt like, that was that felt cheap to me. <laughs> it didn't seem right. Um, what would you say, Ben, um, to someone who wants to basically be a fundamentalist and call it the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things come to mind, right? I mean, I mean, the first right of, I mean, the first retort, of course, is that I would want to make is, you know, if I wanted to be a, a little snappy, um, is that you know, fundamentalism itself, you know, is is sort of deeply linked to and and inexplicable outside of various changes, especially to epistemology characteristic of, of modern science that Mm -hmm. if, if indeed getting around the modern project is your goal, you know, I I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to help you. I remember I was, I don't remember where I found this, but I was, I was reading a bit of the, uh, the fundamentals, the, uh, the other day. And, and there's some, you know, some pastor writing about how, you know, well, no, absolutely, you know, God's activity in the soul over the process of conversion is, is very simply and, and unproblematically accessible to scientific analysis. And of course, by what he means by science is some sort of, you know, Baconian kind of common sense real. I mean, we, we can sort of trace that particular trajectory, but I, you know, I, I don't think that's, that's a way out, but you know, sure. I'll like also absolutely grant that, you know, being, uh, an independent, an independent fundamental Baptist or whatever is, you know, is deeply countercultural in American life right now. Um, <laughs> Just no, question. no, no yeah. question. Um, but the goal isn't just to be countercultural. Thank you. Right. The goal is to be is to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I mean, and there are many ways that one can do that. And, and doubtless one can do that while being an independent fundamentalist, ba- uh, fundamental Baptist. But but I think right to reaction against the present in and of itself isn't enough. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and incidentally, um, a fun Twitter account to follow is IFB Preacher Clips, um, under Independent Fundamental. And they just basically find clips of um, these independent, independent Fundamental Baptist um, hilarious um, sermon <laughs> sermon highlights and uh, and just play them um, straightforward. It, it's a fun time. Um, and yes, out, absolutely countercultural in the same way that like belief in a flat earth is, right? Um, right. <laughs> Sniffing your own farts in Times Square is countercultural, but it doesn't mean you should do it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that, that's why that's why I say it's got to be about accepting something rather than rejecting something. Because if it's just about rejecting mainstream culture, there's all sorts of terrible ways you could do that. Yeah, and and that's where you know those. I, I'm not to pick on the IFBs again, but um, but so many of those sermon clips are about the way women should dress in public, right? And 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 because this is not what the world does, right? And, and so yeah, you end up just sort of becoming this kind of strange um and not in a good way um <laughs> this sort of like strange uh remnant of, of something of some kind of cultural conservatism um um that doesn't reject the right things about modernity um is how mm-hmm. i would say yeah no i think that's well put right like there are you know we have to distinguish, right? There are sort of things about our, our contemporary cultural situation that are good, actually, and and things that aren't. And we have to have the, the set of tools to figure out what is what. Yeah. Um, and as Matthew Arnold would say, you know, knowing the, the best that has been thought and said, right? And, uh, and being able to distinguish uh, those things. So, um, well, guys, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Do you either one have any kind of uh, final thoughts? Here's something frivolous. Everybody should follow Matthew E. Pierce on Twitter. He is the subject of a Christianity Today article that is about weird Christian Twitter. And um, his account is like this weird parody account of 1990s youth group culture. And it's very, very, very funny. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, ben, are you? I know you're in uh, school right now. Are, are, can people so like look you up and look up your work somehow? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, best place to uh, to find me is on on Twitter, where I'm at Benjamin D Crosby. Um, very happy to to chat about about anything and everything there. And I really appreciate again. This has been such a fun conversation. Um, I always enjoy um, chatting with both of you fellas, and you're both welcome at any time to come back. Anybody out there listening, um, um, I know that I am very open to conversation as well. You can find me on Twitter at Danny P. Anderson. And uh, and Michael, you're on Twitter at Kel Bummer. Uh, Kel Bummer. Q U E L L E Bummer. Um, um, Not is- a Hudson Hawk reference. I found out after I created that name that that's a joke from Hudson Hawk. I would certainly not want anyone to think that I was a fan of that movie. <laughs> well, you can reach out to us all. If you have any thoughts or questions, um, please do reach out. And uh, um, thanks again to Ben Crosby and Michael Farmer for joining me for another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. You know,